Let's talk about the latest spasm of gun violence in Metro Vancouver and the cranked up gang activity on the streets of the whole region. It's tall tide to the lucrative drug trade. Just this morning in Chilliwack, Mounties found 15 rifles, handguns, and drugs believed to be cocaine, all part of a major drug trafficking operation. Also today, a large cache of drugs and weapons seized in Victoria. On Tuesday, there was a targeted shooting in Dunbar, and the victim was carrying a baby in a car seat and was accompanied by a woman with a three-year-old child. It feels like every other day we're hearing about gun violence in the Lower Mainland. Have a listen to this. Sources have also revealed that a known gang associate lives close by, and the senior may have been an innocent, unintended victim. We learned from uh, criminal intelligence experts that the network involved in this Richmond shooting, uh, the suspects that were targeted in this case are connected to an international gang. A man carrying a baby in a car seat was targeted. Also with him was a woman and a three-year-old child. Okay, that's all in the last week. Why is it happening? What does our gang landscape look like right now? And why does it seem like the police can't stop it let's check in with a great guest now hillary morden she's a phd candidate at simon fraser university her research focuses on prolific gang affiliated offenders and the establishment and spread of gangs in british columbia i'm very pleased to welcome her thanks a lot for coming on thanks for having me on okay let's talk a little bit about what's going on right now is is the gang activity ramping up right now or does it just seem like that we've seemed to have like a cluster of violence incidents well it it depends on how you think about gangs in vancouver i mean they've always been here and they have a rhythm absolutely we see um you'll see the sporadic shooting here and there and then it ramps up and there's more as people take revenge and you know alliances shift which happens a lot in vancouver and the Lower Mainland. Um, right now, there's a number of sort of key things that have happened, and there's a lot of talk, or at least chatter on the street about it. Um, Jared Bacon's been released, and of course yeah. he's one of the Bacon brothers, and Jamie's been sentenced. Now, both of them were back table um, in prison. Jamie, of course, still is back table. What, so is that, what does that mean? Well, that means that they run their gangs they're still prison. running. They're still running things, even though they're in jail. Oh yeah. yeah oh yeah. yeah. There's no, there's no borders. There's no walls. There's no. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like drugs come in and out. Information comes in and out. So that's destabilized some things because people don't know. You know, will Red Scorpions be resurrected? How is this going to fit in with the Hell's Angels? Brothers Keepers are, you know, all in a sort of running around being really active right now, who's behind the Brothers Keepers. And that that situation is not necessarily with these gangs, but always the situation right. in Vancouver. Let's talk a little bit about some of those gangs you, you mentioned there, Hillary. Like, peop, everybody's heard of the Hells Angels, of course. A lot of, of people may have heard about the Red Scorpions in, in British Columbia and, and the Bacon Brothers. What about some of these other ones, like the Brothers Keepers? Who are they? Well, they they um, sort of emerged over the last 
four or five years. They're Indo-Canadian for the most part, but we don't really have um, race-based or culture-based gangs here. We have more friendship groups. So, um, but given that Vancouver tends to sort of segregate into ethnic enclaves, you might call it, um, they tend to go to school together and then something happens that they start to form a gang. Um, there's some up and coming ones that may dissolve before they come, become anything like the street beaters. I've been hearing their name around a lot lately. Um, and I had never even heard of them six months ago. And this is not uncommon. Like this is, this is pretty typical. You will always have the mafia. You will always have hell's angels. You will always have, um, uh, like the Russian mafia groups and that sort of thing, you will always have parts of the the Asian gangs that come from uh, their home countries. But we also have a lot of, like, they emerge from the street, they start as loose affiliations, they become more cohesive. Maybe they've got a leader who's really good at business management because that's what it wow. comes down to. And then suddenly they're a real player on the street. And that's what we saw with Red Scorpions and um, the United Nations gang and that resulted in the Series 6 shooting. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Speaking to Hillary Morton from Simon Fraser University, she's a researcher into gang activity in British Columbia. What is unique about the gang structure here in, in British Columbia? You mentioned that it seems to be kind of multi-ethnic, multinational, a lot of these gangs. Do they have turf? Like, is a lot of this sort of doing, do we, like, you hear about the classic turf war for drug mm -hmm. dealing, or is it more spread out? Well, it... Uh... It's a bit of both. They see the whole lower mainland as their turf. Mm. They will sell drugs anywhere, sell sex, um, do, you know, identity theft or credit card fraud, wherever. And it, it doesn't matter. A lot of them, once they reach a certain level of establishment, wealth, and power, uh, make international links. For instance, as I was saying to... Um, Oh, gosh, I can never remember names. Anyway, just before I was on your show here, I was saying that about three weeks ago, riding in formation on Golden Ears Bridge, I saw three men on motorcycles with one Hells Angels in a, with the three-piece um, patch on the back, and three of them riding with him were wearing the flash that said Mongols, but an, a virtually identical three-piece flash. Okay, so that's well, like the full patch, as they call yeah. it, right? Who are the yeah. Mongols? Who are those guys? They're from down south. They're wow. they're San Diego, L.A. area. And I was like, what? <laughs> now, it's not unusual to see them ride with throttle lockers or somebody like that. They're from up country. They've been around for a long time, probably since the 80s or 90s even. Um, and they're one of the puppets of the Hells Angels, or have been. I don't know if they are today. Things change rapidly. That's another thing that happens. We have essentially a multi-level um, gang structure where at the top are the very established, long-living gangs like the Hells Angels. Right. Then you get the intermediates like the Red Scorpions in the United Nations, and they tend to be like the um, managers, the middle-level managers of the drug lines, and then below them are their line bosses, and below them are the actual drug dealers, if we're talking about drug dealing as the business. Right. So if the Hells Angels is puppeting a gang below them, 
like throttle lockers or something like that, then the throttle lockers are doing the big buys, bringing it in, and they're distributing it to their line bosses. Who then, so if they decide they a new gang's in town, they want to get rid of them. The Hell's Angels don't pick up the guns and go and shoot somebody. They, it goes all the way down the line until some 17-year-old in a line right. is sick of dealing drugs and wants to move up. It, he'll he'll get the gun and he'll go and do the shooting, which is what I understand was the situation in Dunbar. Do these it guys was, do these guys have any kind of code uh, for the wars that go on? Like often you think about the sort of the code in the mafia where the soldiers will only kill other soldiers. But then we hear about the, these tragedies where you get innocent people caught in the crossfire. Like you mentioned, the Surrey Six slayings are just tragic with innocent people gunned Absolutely. down. And we've seen some, we've seen that recently. Like how dangerous could, does this get when we see daylight shootings on the street and could innocent people get hurt? Well, given that they're terrible aim. I I I know of one shooting where the guys in two cars pulled up beside each other at a stoplight. They both pulled out guns and started shooting and no one got hit. The cars were kind of trashed, but but nobody inside got hit. They're bad shooters. They wow. they don't practice. Um and at least not a lot. Some go to gun ranges and out in the forest and whatnot. But they're they're bad shots. And when you've got a teenager or a young male in his early twenties wanting to establish that he's the baddest on the streets, um, he's he's not really going to care if you're standing with your wife and child. I mean, let's look back to what was it, two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, when right. Nikki Alamy was shot oh. on um, right outside of SFU Surrey. And yeah. her three or four year old son was strapped into the car seat in the back. Yeah, right. No one, no one cared then. So I would say if you're talking the mafia, more established, uh, more traditional, they're, they're not going to go after you if you're not in the game, which is what they tend to refer to it as. If you're not a player, they're not going to go after you. And the middle level guys, who are going to go in to your house, kick in your door. They don't want to do it when there's a kid there because kids are unpredictable. They don't want a kid running around screaming, causing havoc. They, they don't want to deal with that. But the younger men, they, they're not thinking that way. You know, okay. it's just, it, it's hot-headedness. And I'm going to prove that I'm the, I'm the man. With my guest, Hillary Morden from Simon Fraser University. She's a gang researcher here in British Columbia. Hillary, how tough is it for the cops when they get these type of brazen shootings? It, it seems like it's rare when we get an arrest. Are these uh, tough cases to crack for the police? Absolutely. Um, and not at all. It, 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 <laughs> it's like everything else in Vancouver. Um, because at the lower levels, they're loosely affiliated. They're more friend groups, that sort of thing. People come and go. The person who's your enemy today may be in the same sort of business group next week with you. So um, if they follow the code of silence, it'll yes. be difficult to find them because nobody will talk and they can disappear. They, if they're in their late teens, early 20s, they can easily move out of town. They can go visit relatives, whatever. But they tend to brag and they tend to talk. So if police have CIs, confidential informants, who are linked 
into somebody who knows somebody, then they can follow the breadcrumbs back to the shooter or the driver or the spotter, you know, whoever they're looking for. But we have large numbers of unsolved these types of shootings. And part of that is because of the very nature of who does, who picks up the gun, who does the shooting as compared to who ordered it. It, You know, it was like the Surrey six. It took quite a bit of time to track it back to who actually placed the order to do the killing. Do you, do you think that our our criminal justice system is is tough enough on these gangbangers? Because that's what you often hear from the public that the perception is we've got a revolving door justice system. It's kind of catch and release. People are caught. Maybe they go to jail for a little while, but then they're back on the streets and they go right back to the gang lifestyle. I mean, do you think that we need to be tougher? Um, We need to be tougher a lot earlier than once they're in jail. Let's face facts. If a kid finds his way or her way into a gang, that is a systemic failure of family, community, church, school, because in my research, and I spoke to almost 100 affiliated bona fide gang members who were what we call in the wild, which means not arrested, not in jail. They are out doing their bad things that they're doing. And I got them to sit down and talk to me one at a time over a period of two years. And the one thing that I found in my research is every single one of them had had a catastrophic event at some point before the age of 10 two after the age of 10, but mostly before the age of 10, where the adults around them either wouldn't or couldn't help them cope. And they experienced a rift from culture and society and community at that time. And they drifted away. And it's never just one decision. You don't wake up at 16 and go, oh, I'm going to be a gangbanger. That's not what happens. It's a series of decisions that start after your brother commits suicide and you find his body in your bedroom. And then the adults around you can't help you, won't help you. People at school just look away. Adults don't know what to say. And so then there's a series of decisions made that lead to leaving school, leaving friend, established friend groups, no longer talking to the parents. And let's say facts. You know, it's like um, that researcher who was an advisor to The Wire, that television show, said... The one factory that's always hiring is the drug dealing factory when all the others shut down. Well, the one group will always, always be your friend when everybody else has been lost. That's those in the gang. They welcome anybody, right, essentially. So, So if we don't pick these kids up earlier, if we don't intervene through something like youth diversion... We're going to lose them, and they're going to go to jail or they're going to die. They know it. They say it. I could let you listen to the 100 recordings, and you'd hear that statement at some point in that interview. I know if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm going to be dead or I'm going to jail, and I might as well be dead. And this is, you know, 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds saying that. Hillary, it's it's been awesome to have you on here this morning. I've got to tell you, the time has flown by, and you got to come back. Let's have you back on. I'd love to. Okay, let's do that. PhDs and researchers love to talk about what we do. Okay, well, you're you're great. I love listening to your your analysis. Thanks a lot for coming on. That's Hillary Morden. She's a PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University researching B.C. gangs. All right, let's talk about the homeless plan approved yesterday by 
by Vancouver City Council. They unanimously approve an emergency measures plan. The city will spend up to $30 million to buy and lease hotels and other buildings to serve as temporary housing, possibly possibly becoming permanent later. How are the residents of Strathcona feeling about the council's moves here? Of course, we've got that tent city there in Strathcona Park. It is the largest homeless encampment in Canada. Let's check in with Katie Lewis now, Vice President of the Strathcona Residents Association. Katie, it's nice to have you on again. Yeah, nice to be with you, Mike. Okay, what did you think of that move by City Council yesterday? Do you think this is going to change anything or be a help or work? I do, yeah, and I I am a perpetually obnoxious, hopeful person, um, but I, I actually do feel like this is a step in the right direction. Um, and it, it uh, well, the move to buy, you know, SROs and hotels is going to be a kind of a medium-term, um, you know, effect. Uh, we did see an amendment um, put in there by Rebecca Bly um, that is more emergency in nature, and, and I'm very supportive of that, for sure. Okay. Um, yesterday on the show, I spoke to Chrissy Brett, who I'm, whom I know you know, and she's a spokesperson <laughs> for the tent city there in Strathcona Park in your neighborhood. One yeah. of the things that was on the the agenda yesterday for City Council, it looks like they didn't go here, was this idea of sort of permanent or sanctioned tent cities. And I asked Chrissy Brett uh, what she thought of that. Here's what she told me. I think that if any level of Canada would like to provide a Canadian-style refugee encampment that allows for people to get potable drinking water, bathrooms, um, then electricity, and lastly, showers, that it would be way more than currently is offered to homeless people. Okay, a refugee encampment. Is that really what we've come to here, that we're considering some sort of UN-style refugee camps? I mean, come on, we, gotta, we can do better yeah, than that, can't I mean, we? And, and, and that's, what, that's my belief, is that we need to do better than that, right? Like, right. I don't think people should be living in tents, ever, right? Like, we, we, we can do better, and as Canadians, we need to do better. Um, and, and, you know, um, and I think... The move yesterday um, from council actually did is is really a step in the right direction. It's it's not about creating tent cities across Canada at all. It's the exact opposite of that. And and they were signaling that we need to do better too. And and I, I am quite supportive of that. Okay, thirty million dollars. How many buildings will they be able to buy with that? I mean, that doesn't go far in Vancouver's uh, real estate market, does it? What are they going to no, get for that? No, not really. Probably not. Um, you know, I do know that they have been uh, in conversations with a number of um, SRO owners and a number of hotels um, that are um, obviously suffering quite drastically due to COVID. Um, yeah. So, like, the talks are going on. Um, so that, that, you know, gave me a little bit of confidence as well, is like, at least we're having these conversations. Um, but, you know, it's it, it's a stopgap measure, right? Like this is a measure until we can get a provincial government elected and we can get um, a lot of uh, money from the feds, which they have promised, but it's obviously it's just not in the bank account right now. Do we know which buildings they're going to buy at this point? No, we don't. Yeah. And so that's still kind of like undergoing. We have a kind of an idea of some of the ones on the table. Um, Right. But but we don't we don't actually they they won't actually kind of come out and, and tell us quite yet. Okay, when is all this going to happen? Because I know time is of the essence because it's getting worse down there in the park, isn't it? Yeah, I mean things have really escalated, and then particularly just even in the last two weeks, like you know we had a 
man wielding a chainsaw trying to kill people um, just a few weeks ago. And, and, and things, things are really, um, are getting, yeah, I mean, we're, we're at a crisis point, right? And I yeah. think that's what council heard yesterday from so many Strathcona residents is that, that this is a crisis. And in a crisis, you have to act nimbly and you have to be quick. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's basically what we begged them to do. And, and I am like, I do feel hopeful that I, I, I think they heard us and, and I, uh, I hope that they respond accordingly and, and I hope right. that we can get this ball rolling real quick. Right. But it's not going, it's, it sounds like they're not going to sh- shut down that tent city at Strathcona park anytime soon or are they? Well, I'm not sure about that. We'll see. Okay. Right. Um, so the, you know, I, I don't know. And unfortunately, that power lies with the park board, right? So, so they're a bit tied by the park board's hands. And I have a lot of words for the park board, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, it, it sounds like if the park board knows that people can be housed, it sounds like there, there is a possibility that they may bring an injunction. But who knows? Okay, let me play another Chrissy Brett clip here for you from yesterday's show. She's a spokesperson for the campers there in Strathcona Park in your neighborhood. And we were talking about the SROs, the single room occupancy hotels. Is this an adequate sort of at least a temporary measure to move people into the, into these places? She, tur- she doesn't sound very enthusiastic about that idea. And she turned around and issued a challenge to Vancouver mm-hmm. Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Here's what she said. Mm-hmm. And so if Mayor Kennedy would like to spend one night in an SRO of my choice, then I would be willing to stay there one night if Kennedy Stewart was willing to stay one night. Okay, I'm not sure what that would accomplish, but I guess the point she is trying to make is that these places are awful places and they're infested with bugs and they're dangerous and and they're not adequate, but your thoughts? Well, she's not wrong, right? We know that there are like a number of SROs that are in deplorable conditions, right? And I actually like kind of appreciate her challenge and I would encourage the mayor to do the same Um, because, um, you know, I have friends that live in SROs and they suck. Like a lot of them, the no guest policy, no pets, like these are really big stumbling blocks for people and I appreciate them. Um, but what we, I mean, what we really need to do is like get them up to real like conditions that are, that are acceptable. Right. Because it's still better than living in a tent in my opinion. Um, and, you know, especially if you can have like a private bathroom or something and, and, you know, like I, I definitely hear the concerns and I, I think they're valid um, quite frankly on a lot of levels. Yeah, it's interesting that there was a, a, an amendment moved yesterday as well. Councillor Pete Fry was involved with this, and, and I know he's, he's talked to you about this idea, and that was to triage people effectively in Strathcona Park, deal with their health and safety by prioritizing shelter relief, basically going in there with one of those, one of those facilities to kind of get people moving in the right direction, right? Yeah, that's right. And I'm, I'm super, I was very, very supportive of that amendment. And I'm, you know, Pete has uh, worked really hard on this and I, I give him a lot of credit. Like, you know, he doesn't get a lot of credit, but he deserves a lot of credit because he's put in a ton of hours on this, um, trying to get people, uh, the idea being that we get people triaged, right? So if you, if you, you know, you need to understand who, who you're dealing with first, right? Like figure out what their needs are and then you can respond to their needs. Yeah, so, this is I mean, what they, this the what they need- call the navigation, navigation center, yeah. right? What, yeah. Like what is, yeah. what is that for people maybe hearing that term a navigation center? How, what is that and how is it supposed to work? 
Yeah, so uh, ideally, like, um, and the province has already, like, committed to opening a navigation centre, but it's going to take a bit of time. Um, but what we, what yesterday was, you know, kind of expediating that process. So a navigation centre is, like, something that would be open 24-7. Um, they'd probably have, I don't know, 60 beds in there for homeless people, but it would be a place that you could come, you could have more, a hot shower, you could have a meal, um, you could kind of spend your day there if you needed to, right? So it's yeah. it's just like, a, and it's also a place, though, to to actually triage the needs of the people in the community, right? So you can figure out, what do you need? Like, what do you need housing? Do you need a bus ticket home? I have no idea, right? Like, but basically, it's just a central point where people can come. We've seen them in San Francisco. They've been very successful there. Um you know, and, and we've seen them in other cities across North America. And I think it's, you know, high time that Vancouver has one as well. Okay. Were you surprised at all that this idea of a sanctioned tent cities, there, there was an option put on, on the table for councillors to consider, maybe you could set up some, I guess not permanent, but sanctioned or official tent cities on vacant land owned by the city in the, in the, owned by the city in, in the city of Vancouver, move people there. It does not seem like a great idea to me. It didn't go there. It's like, is that idea just done with now? Is that op- dead? Yeah, or, and yeah. I, I don't, I think it's a bad idea too, right? Like, yeah. it's it's kind of like the idea that was floated four months ago, um, right? Um, but we're now, you know, I, again, like, I don't want anyone to live in a tent, right? Like, and yeah. I think we can do better than that. And, and um, I actually, like... You know, I, I don't think the idea of a managed encampment is one that the city took seriously at all. They they did lay it out there on the table, but um, I really like from my conversations with city councillors and stuff. It's it's something that no one really wanted to get on board with, and I and I'm you know and I'm actually quite supportive of that because I I I think we can do better, right? Like you know we need to step it up. I agree with you, Katie. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. All right, Katie Lewis, Vice President of the Strathcona Residents Association. Many British Columbians this week were surprised and saddened to hear about former BCTV and Global News anchor Deb Hope and her struggle with Alzheimer's disease. Many listeners will know Deb Hope. She was an iconic news personality in British Columbia for many, many years, trusted, admired. I would say she was loved by so many people in British Columbia. She retired from Global when she was just 59 years old. That was just six years ago. And a lot of people wondered why at that time. Why is she retiring now? Well, now we know why. A very moving article written by two of her former colleagues, Clive Jackson and Ian Haysom, appeared online this week detailing her struggle with this terrible disease, Alzheimer's, which has taken such a heavy, heavy toll on her and her family. And Ian Hasem joins me now. He's the former news director at BCTV and Global News. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hi, Ian. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, this is a story that has just shocked and saddened so many people in British Columbia this week because so many people did not know about uh, Deb's struggle here with this uh, terrible disease. 
Uh, tell me how you came about to write this. And I, I know you, you're doing this with the blessing of her, of her family, right? Yes, and we, you should know we, um, Clive Jackson, uh, former managing editor, global assignment editor, and I, we are great friends with Roger and Deb, our families are. We, uh, we, we've hung out with them for years, Roger and I. We play music together, we play golf, and we've been talking about this for some years, about the, you know, we saw the decline of, of, um, of, of Deb, a little bit on air, as I mentioned in the article, we began to see a stumble. And then over the years, the, it, it became, as many families will know in British Columbia, progressively worse. And um, about a year, a few months ago, both Clive and I, we're newsmen, we said this is a story that um, British Columbia needs to know at some point. And it was with Roger's blessing we did it. Roger's a lovely man. And, um, and you know, can imagine he's, he's gone through a heartbreaking time, as, as many people have in this province, in this world, with uh, Alzheimer's. And, you know, again and again, Roger would say to me, hey, there's still Deb. Deb's still there. She's still in there. I can still see Deb. But the decline over the last, actually, since the beginning of COVID, really, um, became rapid. And uh, it was about this time that uh, we spoke to Roger, and Roger said, yeah, that, yeah, can you tell the story, guys? And we told it. One of the things we did, we told it through other people. As, as Squire did last night, he did a lovely piece on NewsHour, yeah. which was all about people remembering her. You said she's loved. Yeah, beloved. I, I actually once called her, uh, at her retirement party, I called her British Columbia sweetheart, because that's what she was. People love her. Yeah, they really did. And I encourage people to to read the article if you have not read it. Give me a follow on Twitter, and I've, I've tweeted out the link there, but it's, it's very easy to find online uh, because it's basically just flashed around British Columbia. So many people surprised uh, by by this news. What kind of reaction have you re- have you received to the article, Ian? Well, it's been stunning, overwhelming, really. I've heard, heard from many pe- you know, people, um, were same thing, were surprised, but from lots of former colleagues, people around British Columbia, journalists, obviously, many um, who wondered what it, why, like you did, why Deb had gone uh, from the airwaves. And um, it's, it, it, but it, the one thing that keeps coming out is, again, again, is, is, you know, the respect for her. Um, and Keith touched on this, you know, as a, as a news person, um, but also as a broadcaster. She had this amazing ability to connect with the audience. And I think. The reason for that is that she was a BC girl. She grew up in trail. Um, she had no side to her. She was no ego, as Keith said in the previous half hour. Um, she was genuine, the genuine article, I'd, I'd call it. She was just all the time. Um, she'd, 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 uh, um, she, was, she was there championing on behalf of the ordinary Joes and Joannes out in the, uh, out in the marketplace. Let's listen to a little bit of uh, Deb Hope here, Ian. Here is uh, Deb back in 1991 on assignment in China. This stop was not on our official itinerary. Our guide was very reluctant to bring us here, but when we insisted, he relented. Because this is Tiananmen Square, and what's going on here today is so ordinary. It's really hard to conjure up the extraordinary events of June 4th. Okay, she's a great journalist and very trusted as a news anchor. What was it like for you to work with her? Oh, fantastic. You know, she came up through the trenches. She, uh, like, like us, like you and me, Mike, she was a print reporter first. Yeah. And, um, and she, she, she learned her trade in Canadian press, Ottawa, um, and to work with. And, um, she, she was tough. 
Actually, uh, uh, this is almost a non sequitur, but um, the, the she uh, the other day I was talking to Harold Monroe, the editor of the Vancouver Sun, um, about a soccer game we had with the with the Vancouver Sun at Global BC TV, and uh, and and Deb played. She was a fantastic soccer player, wow. and and Harold played in that game, and he sent me a, a line. He said, he said "Yeah, I remember. I was I, I was in that game, and she was a rough tackler," and I said. <laughs> You know what a metaphor. She was a rough tackler in the newsroom too. She she held you to account. She you know as Keith said, she'd call you Mister Mister and Hun and Darling and all those things. But if she thought you'd screwed up, if she thought you were doing a story that was wrong or you know it, it, it wasn't good enough, she let you know. She looked after the young people in the, in the newsroom. Um, the, she was never no, no ego. You know she was just. Uh, um, and it's, it's sad. I keep saying was. It's tough to talk about Deb in the past tense because she's still with us, but right, of she also isn't with us. Right. Yeah, she's still with us, and we can hope that she's comfortable um, living in a nursing home. But your, your article very graphically describes her decline. Like, how is she doing right now? Well, it, it, it's tough. She doesn't recognize Roger. She doesn't recognize anybody now. Yeah. Um, Roger visits her often. Uh, she's got three lovely kids um, who who. Um, Roxanne, um, Catherine, and her stepdaughter, Leah, um, who uh, helped her through over the last few years. It's been tough for them, for watching their mum, stepmom go through this. Um, I was over one day, and I saw Leah just looking after Deb, talking to her quietly, reading, and combing her hair, brushing her hair for her. Um, and Deb then could, you know, she last time I went to see her, she sort of remembered me. Um, but didn't, you know, and she, with the decline went on and on. And then now she doesn't, she really doesn't recognize anybody. Um, and she's in a wheelchair and, you know, I don't want to obviously go too much into a, a personal situation, but it's tough and it's tough for yeah. everybody. Yeah. And there's so many families who can relate, who have been going through and they know exactly what you're talking about with uh, the ravages of this particular disease and the, the tributes flowing in to, to Deb Hope uh, this week after your article appeared. Here's one, uh, Tony, here's Tony Parsons, a former BCTV anchor talking about Deb. She just took off. She was a great reporter and she rose through the ranks and became, well, what she is today. And she's had a, an amazing career. I always thought there was nothing that, that Deb couldn't do. Okay, yeah, and describing her rise up the ranks to the top there in the news business, as, as you described. She worked hard. Oh, she did. She was an unbelievable hard worker. She came in, you know, the, uh, um, in fact, she was an inspiration to many younger ones and the new, younger people arriving in the newsroom. You know, some, uh, some people think, you know, there's dilettantes in the newsroom, the anchors, but the anchors do work hard. They continue to work hard, but she really set the tone. All right, let's have, another, let's have another memory here. There's Steve Wyatt, former news director of BCTV, and here she, he is talking about a famous story that Deb hit about a, a young child who, with hearing loss, hearing for the first time with the assistance of hearing aids. Beautiful, moving story. Uh, let's have a listen to that. And the look on this child's face, and it was just one of those magical moments in television that are so rare. And Deb and her camera, who worked with her on that story, had the foresight to grab it and put it on television and just let it speak for itself. And that's another thing about Deb. She never was in front of her story as Deb. She always let the story come first. Okay, what do you think of that, Ian? Yeah, she had Absolutely. a beautiful touch. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And by the way, Steve... 
uh, also was a great friend of Deb's. The, the, the Global Newsroom, BCTV Newsroom, has always been a big family, and, uh, and we're all interconnected. Um, Steve's right. She was, she was never, it was never about Deb. The story was about the story. And she wanted to tell people stories. Um, and she had this un- incredible ability that not a lot of journalists have to move from heavy to light. Um, you know, where she could, she could go out there. She could, she could quiz the premier. She could go after a prime minister and a housing minister or whatever. And she, she'd absolutely research the story. I mean, she really did. She, she, she would not just, um, you know, they come on and it was a 10 second read. She'd go and really study it and research it and really hold their feet to the fire. And the next moment (laughs) she could just be telling a lyrical human interest story or she brought the pet segment, for God's sake, on yes. Tuesdays to, to BCTV, one of the most popular segments ever, and um, because she loved animals. She thought that would be a wonderful thing to do. So there was no, hey, I've got to be the hard-hitting, bang-bang reporter when right. I can't do the soft stuff. She did all of it. Yeah, she could do all of it and uh, just had that amazing touch as an anchor, so trusted um, as people. I think people would probably think, like, almost feel like they knew her. You know, well, they just did. Because, yeah. You know, you, what you saw was what you got. Right, that right. there was no there was no performance with Deb. She she and and so the the Deb we knew was the, the Deb everybody knows in British Columbia. Okay, it's an amazing article. I, I encourage people to check it out. The article by Ian Haysom. Give me a follow on Twitter, and I've just tweeted the link out for you there, and you can find it easily there at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S M Y T H at Mike Smith News on Twitter. You'll find the article there about Deb Hope, and we just certainly hope that uh, she and her family uh, find some comfort here in the in the days ahead. This is such a difficult, brutal disease here, Alzheimer's. And one of the things I loved, Ian, about the end of the story was it it ends with an appeal, but by the way, if you want to do something in Deb's honor, make a donation to the Alzheimer's Society of BC, right? Absolutely. That's yeah. tremendous. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, the link there is in the article that I tweeted as well. All right. My guest is Ian Haysom, former news director at BCTV and Global News. Ian, let's talk about your book real quickly in the moment, in the minutes we got left. This is fantastic. The book is Grandfathered, Dispatches from the Trenches of modern grandparenthood congratulations on the book what, what made you. you write this thanks very much it's, it's not the book that people expected me to write but it's uh, it's been a labor of love so it's a, it's a it's a book about my grandchildren um but i, I hope it, it has resonance with every grandfather out there the premise is that um we are not our grandfathers we we the grandfathers today um we're we're living longer. We're baby boomers, so we think we'll live forever. Um, and we're um, we're engaged and involved in our children's lives. But mostly, I just wanted to uh, just the joy of being grandfather, and they're funny stories, mostly vignettes, um, and and other grandfathers too. I did want to mention uh, George Garrett um, and yes. lovely writers like Bob Stoll used to be at the province. So I had the idea of calling up a few of my friends who are grandfathers and and people in business and and uh, george garrett who has four grandkids of his own um also wrote a little piece in the back and and uh and his four grandchildren wrote little pieces so it's uh it's a special time how many grandkids do you have i got four i got four kids <laughs> um i'm the second most famous hasem to come out of global bc yes. um and i have Four grandchildren, uh, aging from ten to one, just uh, born two months ago. Little Summer, she's. 
spectacular. And three, two are in Victoria, one's on Salt Ring, Miami. Right. People will uh, people will know your son is Paul Hasem, of course, the global news anchor. He's in, is he Calgary now, right? No, get out. He's We're, on the morning show. Oh, he's on the morning show, of course. Right. Yeah, 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 of course. Right, Actually, Paul, Paul has not given me a grandson or granddaughter, but has given us a grand dog. And I, I wrote a chapter about grand dogs and how, you know, when you're a grandparent, you, you sorry, when you, when you have kids, you end up looking after their dogs as much as, as looking after grandchildren. Um, and they've just got, he and his partner just got a new dog called Fuller, which they're besotted <laughs> with. Where can so, people where can people get the book? You can get it just any bookstore anywhere, and it's at London Drugs and Save on Foods and here, then, everywhere, and uh, buy it for your grandfather or your grandson yeah. or for Christmas. I love it, Ian. Thanks a lot for coming on today, and congrats on the book. And thanks for sharing your memories of Deb Hope. Thank you so much for for having me on, and thanks to everyone for. for of, of, of reacting to Deb. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's been overwhelming for sure. Ian Haysom, former news director there at Global News and BCTV. His book, by the way, is Grandfathered Dispatches from the Trenches of Modern Grandparenthood. Nearing the end of another busy week on the BC election campaign trail. Look at all those promises just flying fast and furious. Every major party getting in on the act here. One of the big promises of course from the bc liberal party scrap the provincial sales tax at least for a year andrew wilkinson the liberal leader said that's what a liberal government would do they would eliminate the sales tax for one year immediately if they win the election in a couple of weeks chop it down to just three percent in year two of a covid recovery plan of course the pst right now is seven percent wow that was a big promise let's have a listen to what he said about it here about it here's uh, wilkinson we need bold action so the bc liberal government will eliminate the provincial sales tax for a full year in the second year we'll reduce it to three percent Okay, let's talk about this issue now with my guest, Anita Huberman. She is the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Anita, it's nice to have you on again. Good morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think of this idea? Scrap the sales tax. I've heard a lot of business leaders say, kind of like this idea, but I know maybe you've got a different perspective on it, right? Well, you know, it's um, okay for the short term. It's um, okay for the consumers, but uh, all of these promises are shot-in-the-dark solutions. We need a complete overhaul of BC's tax system to ensure that we're competitive. And uh, this uh, was a problem even prior to the pandemic. The provincial sales tax is very antiquated, huge administrative burdens uh, to businesses. And, uh, and yes, I'm going to say it, there needs to be a move towards a value-added tax uh, to make us competitive, not only uh, in our nation, but around the world. And uh, we really need to make sure that we're looking at all of our taxes that have been layered onto businesses, compromising bottom line productivity. I'm talking about the employer's health tax. I'm talking about other taxes like the speculation tax. All of that needs to be looked at. And that is the promise that needs to be made in this B.C. election to businesses. Okay, cutting the provincial sales tax like Wilkinson and the Liberals have suggested would carve a huge hole in the provincial budget. Now, we've already got a massive deficit, $12 billion, maybe close to $13 billion. So some people would say, ah, well, the budget's already blown. 
But if you get rid of the PST, man, oh man, that's like almost seven million, seven billion bucks a year. So you're talking a deficit around could blow up twenty billion dollars. Should people be concerned about that? I mean, as as in terms of like fiscal policy with a tax cut, a big tax cut like that, do you think it's smart? Well, I think even during a pandemic, all levels of government need to take a look at fiscal responsibility. No one is talking about that. And all of these announcements, even including the SkyTrain extension to Langley, where are people going to get the money from? And what about some other investments that need to be made around health care and child care and other pieces? What's going to be compromised? No one is talking about that. Okay, how about the administrative burden of the provincial sales tax? Because I hear some small business people, some business organizations that say this tax is just a pain to have to deal with. And maybe if you got rid of it, if only for a year, it would be a relief. The problem, I guess, though, is it would be temporary, right? It would come back. Yeah, it would be temporary. It's just a a short-term solution. The provincial sales tax, Surrey Board of Trade, we've always been calling for a reform of the PSD, at least, to reduce administrative burden. Uh, But we know that uh, if the PST is gone uh, and there's no value-added tax, and yes, you know, I'm talking about the the old HST, um, you know, we uh, we really need to take a look at our whole tax system within British Columbia. It is a huge tax burden, um, administrative burden to our small and medium-sized businesses in, in British Columbia. Okay, I'm speaking to Anita Huberman. She is the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that value-added tax you were talking about, Anita. People will remember the harmonized sales tax, the HST, that was imposed a few, several years ago in British Columbia. There was a public uprising over it. People were mad as hell. The liberal government of the day had to back down, promise, give people a referendum on it. And it was shot down in that referendum. The HST went away. I take your point about you could certainly make a, a great argument in favor of a value-added tax like that as a as a as a more fair, transparent, and, and easier easier to administer tax. The problem with the HST in BC was that Gordon Campbell, who was the premier back then, basically said he wouldn't do it. The Liberals said they wouldn't bring that tax in, and then they brought it in anyway after the election. So it was a bit of a double cross. And that's what kind of angered people. Would would you like to see some politicians just have the jam to stand up and say, this is the type of tax that we really need, get on with get in with the modern world and a lot of other jurisdictions and just let people have their say on it? There needs to be a commitment to at least have a dialogue and uh, education process around what a value-added tax means, how it's going to create investments in our business community, and create jobs. And that wasn't done when uh, the HST was on the table uh, under the Campbell government, and uh, we fought for it. Uh, BC's business leaders fought for it, uh, but the the education wasn't there. And there was distrust uh, under the political paradigm that it was under. So that's why it was gone. Uh, but I think it needs to be back on the table. Uh, we're, uh, you know, looking at economic recovery mechanisms. We need to stop these shot-in-the-dark solutions and look at long-term economic opportunities. Yeah. What do you think about all these promises that are flying around? You touched briefly on this. There are so many of them. We've already talked about get rid of the PST. Uh, the Green Party has promised free childcare 
four-day work week. Of course, they won't form government, but the other parties that stand a chance of forming government in this election are also promising like crazy. Andrew Wilkinson's out there today talking about $10 a day child care. Uh, John Horgan has promised basically free money for people, a thousand bucks a family, direct deposited to your bank account. Even if you haven't been economically impacted by COVID-19, you, you haven't missed a day of work, you'd still get a thousand bucks in your bank account from, from the government. Uh, you mentioned the SkyTrain extension to Langley, which was promised this week by John Horgan. Don't you think that'd be great for Surrey? Well, two things. Number one, why is it that uh, these promises are being made now? Uh, why weren't they talked about before the election was called? They, all of the parties had the opportunity to be leaders. And, uh, and number two, we're, we're in a pandemic. We have to look at fiscal responsibility. Uh, people are talking about these promises that are, that are going to cost business in the end. Business doesn't have a vote. Uh, so, you know, we can't really say anything. Uh, you know, we can advocate to different levels of government to instigate change. Uh, but in the end, it's going to be business uh, that pays the taxes. And uh, these are shot-in-the-dark type of uh, promises, um, no fiscal responsibility. Right. And the SkyTrain, uh, just to address that, you know, great for regional transportation uh, to get people to Vancouver. But what about within Surrey? Uh, Surrey has a geography that can fit Vancouver, Richmond, Burnaby in our city limits, and the rest of Surrey is being compromised in terms of transit and transportation options. What do you think would be better for Surrey? Well, for for we've always advocated for light rail transit, Mike, right. yeah. and uh, we need that, and it would have been half-built by now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Anita, interesting take as usual. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. All right, that's Anita Huberman. She is the CEO of the Board of Trade in Surrey. Interesting take on these issues. And a lot of business organizations have been cheerleading for a lot of these cuts, uh, especially the idea to scrap the provincial sales tax there, as promised by the BC Liberals. Interesting kind of contrarian take there on it from Anita Huberman saying, maybe not such a good idea. Bad fiscal policy. She brings dares to go there. Yeah, she says the HST. Maybe we should bring that back. She thinks it would be a fair type of tax in British Columbia, rejected by voters in a referendum many years ago in British Columbia. What do you think about that? Do you think that should be back on the table? A harmonized sales tax, a value-added tax? The old HST, should that be brought back? Here we get the torkey. Hey, torkey, torkey. Oh, sweet torkey noise. Torkey. Okay. We roost the torkey. Here we go. Okay, this is a little bit of the Swedish chef there roasting a turkey. You know what? I'm a home cook. I enjoy cooking at home for my family. And my favorite meal of the year, Thanksgiving turkey dinner. So I'm pumped. I'm looking forward to roasting the turkey again this weekend. It'll be a smaller gathering than usual here during COVID-19, but that's okay. I'm still roasting the turkey this weekend. So we thought we'd finish off the week on a high note. Let's talk about roasting a perfect, juicy Thanksgiving turkey. And my guest is Karen McSherry, founder and president of the Gourmet Warehouse. Karen, it's great to talk to you again. Oh, my God, Mike, I'm so excited to be back talking to you. I've missed you. I know, it has been too long. But you know what? My favorite time to talk to you is this segment when we talk about cooking the turkey. That's I just awesome. love okay. it. Okay, 
Briner or a roaster? What are you? Okay, I love to brine the bird. I, it's easier than people think, right? What What would be right. your tip on that, brining? Oh, brining is 100% the way to go. The moistness, the, the, the juicy bird, it is absolutely the way to go, and it is not that hard. Right. It, it's just a you don't even have to buy a pre-done mix. You can do your own solution with salt and sugar. It's kosher salt, sugar, aromatics, which means like, you know, t- throw some thyme in, garlic cloves, peppercorns, bay leaf, and you heat all that up together. And then you cool it right down, of course. You let it get really cold in the fridge. And then you pour it over your cold bird and you let that sit for 24 hours you need a great big giant size Ziploc bag, and they're called brining bags, and that's how you do it. You rinse the bird off on the morning of your, if you're Sunday or Monday, whatever day you're cooking, right. and pop, dry it off, pop it in the oven, rub a little olive oil over her, and you're good to go. Yeah, no, it is a great method, and I use it every time now. Like, I was one over the first time I ever tried it, and it is easier than you think. Some people might think, okay, you're putting in all that kosher salt in the water. Is that going to make the bird too salty? Not at all. All the salt does is it breaks down the membrane, and it makes the bird so tasty. It allows for all the flavors to penetrate in, and you wash it all off. The salt doesn't go into the flesh. It's just brining it, making it softer it's so good if you've never tried it give it a try it's not it's not hard at all and if you're like me you'll be won over for sure now for the turkey uh you buy a fresh turkey right you ever buy a a frozen turkey um i think you know what back in the day when it was like you know butterball and that's all there was available but now there are so many great growers in the in the valley like jd farms and all these local growers depend on us um, for that. So, yeah, no, I, I'm a fresh turkey girl. Yeah, me too. I always go for the fresh turkey. JD Farms, I've had their turkeys. They're, they're very, very good. What temp- Now, here's one that I'm a little confused about sometimes, Karen, is what temperature do you put the turkey in the oven? Okay, there's lots of mixed um, personal reviews. Yes. I like to start it high, like yeah. at 400, and then I like to turn it down to 375. And what right. that high temperature does is it, it, it seals everything in, and then I turn it down for the slow roast. Right. So like an 8 to 12-pound bird, 8 is hard to get. Right now, they're the most in demand, and all the butchers are saying, ah, everybody's going smaller, because as you yeah. said at the <laughs> onset, smaller gathering, right? Right. So you know what? Think of this. If you can't get a small bird... Who doesn't love leftovers? Well, that's right. That's, that's the right. best part. You just have some so, more leftovers. Yeah, you're looking at about 12 pounds, 8 to 12 pounds, like 12 pound bird, three hours. So you need a thermometer. You definitely want a, an internal um, thermometer so that you gauge it, so that you're not bringing out um, pink turkey. Yes. You don't want that. You want it cooked all the way through. And, and it's safely cooked at like 180 degrees. That's right. what you want. 180 Fahrenheit, 82 Celsius. Okay, I like the start hot method and turn down as well. When do you turn Good. it? When do you turn it down? Like I usually go one after hour. Th- one hour. Okay, okay. I one would usually hour. do. I usually do thirty minutes, but you, you know. could thirty works too. Okay, thirty to an hour, not more than an hour though, for sure. Okay, do you cover the turkey at all? 
or just I open? cover it because it will br- get too brown. So I will cover right. it in this really old fashioned way. And and my mother used to do this, and I always was. It was so weird. She used to use the Woodward's paper shopping bags because back in the day, Woodward's had their your bags for your groceries were paper, and she yeah. would cut and make a tent out of the paper bag and tent it. And you think, well, you're going to put paper in the oven? Are you nuts? It's going to burn. You're going to have a yeah. fire. But yeah. you don't. You don't have a fire because it's not hot enough to burn it. You're not. It's not igniting. So you just tent that, <laughs> or you could use tin foil, but yeah. reverse. Okay, reverse the tin foil so shiny side in. Shiny side in. Okay. Yes. Okay. And then that way you can tent it. And then the last hour of cooking, you take that tent off and let the bird brown all the way around. Okay. Stuffing in the bird or you cook that, cook the stuffing separately? Oh boy. That is, that is the 50 50. Mm-hmm. Some like it sort of that crunchy, more dried out outside the bird. Yep. And then others love the juices sort of giving that incredible flavor to the inside of the bird. So you do both. You do both. Now, if ah. you don't, if you like it outside, know that your bird will cook much quicker. All right. Getting you ready for your Thanksgiving dinner with Karen McSherry, founder and president of the Gourmet Warehouse.